thank you, Father, for your spirit that rains down upon us. And we ask right now that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit in our midst. Uh, Lord, we, we ask, we seek that you would be in our midst. We thank you that you have promised that. And just by our gathering together in your name, uh, you have guaranteed your presence, that you are with us. And we know that you want to speak to us. We know that you want to minister to us and bring healing, bring your grace and your mercy. And so we ask that this morning in all of the service, Lord, that we would, we would be receiving from your grace, receiving from your gracious hand of mercy, and responding with our worship and with our praise and with our thanksgiving, with our hearts of adoration and affection. Uh, Lord, we pray that everything we do would be real, that you would strike down everything in us that would be fake or pretentious, that uh, our worship, our time this morning would be genuine and would bring glory to you. And so we just commit this time into your hands now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning we are looking in John chapter 2. If you have a Bible and would like to turn there. Um, We know that, um, well, probably you know that all of us have buttons. Do you know what what your buttons are? You know those things in your life that when people push them, you explode? You know what those are? Does anybody have buttons? Uh, Anybody want to admit it? Does anybody want to confess what theirs are? No, we won't go there. Um, We all have these things in our life that are sensitive. Now, there are some things that should evoke a response of anger or kind of a strong reaction in any person, but typically our buttons are uniquely ours because we are very sensitized to certain things. And oftentimes what catches us off guard is when something everybody else doesn't respond to, when we you know, are talked in a certain way or about a certain thing, we just explode. And uh, that's because these buttons are very sensitive things in our life that uh, really reveal a lot about our heart, reveal a lot about uh, maybe the wounds in our life, uh, certainly reveals the things that matter the most to us. Uh, they, they're uh, great indicators, really, of what's important to us. Uh, our kids, it's amazing. You know, if, you have, if you're a parent and you have children, you know that your kids learn how to push your buttons before they can even talk or walk. It's amazing. They just kind of have this radar for how to set off mom and dad. And for most kids, it's a great form of entertainment. It's like, yeah, things are getting boring. I think I'll push the magic button and watch mom or dad explode because it's great fun. Um, Part of uh, one of the marks or signs of our own growth and our own maturity, our own spiritual development, is that in time, those buttons should hopefully get much smaller and much fewer, hopefully. And uh, not that they go well together because there still are some things that should rightfully set us off. There are things that we should be passionate about and things that should evoke strong reactions from us. But we hope that those things shift from the things that are in the flesh and become really truly the things of God. And uh, if, we were, if we could put our life under the microscope and examine those buttons, uh, they, they ought to reveal uh, a lot about our heart. And I think that's true of Jesus. And this, this morning we're going to look at what sets Jesus off. What are Jesus' buttons? What is it that that uh, flames Jesus into passionate response. And uh, let's read about that in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It was time for the annual Passover celebration, 
And Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. And he saw money changers behind their counters. Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased, out all of the, chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and oxen, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scriptures. Passion for God's house burns within me. What right do you have to do these things, the Jewish leaders demanded. If you have this authority from God, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it took 46 years to build this temple and you can do it in three days? But by this temple, Jesus meant his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed both Jesus and the scriptures. Because of the miraculous signs he did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one needed to tell him about human nature. Um, you know, this, uh, this chapter has two very interesting stories, and John deliberately put them together. Um, they, I, I believe they are chronological. There's a lot of debate over whether uh, the other synoptic gospels report this story at the end of Jesus' ministry, at his last Passover, right before the crucifixion, because of that, a lot of scholars debate, you know, is this the same event or were there two separate uh, events where Jesus uh, chased the animals out of the temple? Uh, I believe that, um, that there were two events, that this is marked, and John has some very clear time indicators in here. He marks with days and events and clear conjunctions that these things happened shortly after uh, he was in Cana at the, at the marriage feast. But more than that, these stories are connected in, in ideas. And John put these two stories together uh, because they, they, sh they point to many of the same things. And if you remember last week, we looked at the, the feast of the, the wedding celebration. Now we find Jesus at a Passover celebration. One was the celebration of a wedding and a very family-focused. This celebration was very religious and very nationally focused, but also one that was participated in by whole families, and it was very much a family outing. Um, it was a celebration. It wasn't just a matter of going to offer a sacrifice at the temple. It really was a celebration. And uh, if you were a Passover pilgrim, uh, at this time in, in Israel's history, of course, Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And uh, this Passover was a big deal. And for the Passover celebration, they would come from all over the Roman Empire, from as far away as Africa, to celebrate and it was just that. It was a celebration. And it was, of course, celebrating the Exodus. Uh, God's great redemptive act in the Old Testament where he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and he redeemed them. And uh, part of the redemption, if you remember the plagues, was that they were to kill a lamb and they were to paint the blood of this lamb on the, the, the doorposts of their home so that the, the death angel would pass by their house. And through that, through that plague through all that God did. He redeemed them. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so every year 
at Passover, they would celebrate this great event. And it was done with much affair and much partying, much celebrating, much joy, much like we would do, say, at Christmas time. And in fact, the kids are beginning to prepare the Christmas program and they're all excited about looking at how we celebrate Christmas with our different traditions and it's a big deal. Well, Passover was that way for them. Uh, The city of Jerusalem would swell with hundreds of thousands of visitors at this time. Uh, Josephus put at one Passover the number well over a million visitors. Some people think he may have been exaggerating. Even if he was exaggerating, just to have even 500,000 people show up was huge. Huge. And uh, people would come from all over and Jerusalem would just be swelled with people. And they were there to celebrate this Passover. It involved, at the focal point of it, see, that's why I love celebrations, at the focal point of every celebration is food. You know, and God was really good in this. It's genius, really. Because you've got to eat anyway. Why not make it fun and make it a big deal? And, and it was at the center of the celebration. They would go to the temple. They would take this lamb. They would kill it. And then they would take it home and eat it. Somewhere in there it got cooked. <laughs> and, uh, and there were lots of things that went along with this uh, meal. Uh, unleavened bread and cups of wine. And if you've ever had a chance to participate in a modern-day uh, Passover supper, it's, it's a really cool experience and a big deal. Well, that's what was going on. And, um, uh, and Jesus went to this Passover. His presence, just as his presence at the wedding gave it significance, likewise, Jesus' presence at these celebrations, at these Jewish, Jewish festivals, marked them as significant. Uh, Jesus does not de- denounce the festivals. He goes, he participates. Uh, he is part of it there. But of course, as we see in this story, when he gets to Jerusalem, there are some things that push his buttons. Okay, there are some things that set him off. And uh, I remember as a child, I had one of these, you know, back in, when I was a kid, back in a very long time ago, some of you can relate to this, children's Bibles were just frightening things. And I remember I had this children's Bible uh, written in King James English. So to this day, I couldn't understand what it says. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was highlighted or illustrated with these very graphic, terrifying pictures. You know, these little Jonathan David, little happy little kid, baby-faced, you know, innocent things. I mean, these were terrible pictures. Terrible. David holding Goliath's head, blood dripping down, you know, stuff like that. This is, I'm scarred for life because of my Bible, I'm telling you. And uh, one of the pictures I remember was the picture of Jesus driving out the money changers. And then it was a terrible picture. Jesus with this whip and just, you know, veins popping out of his head and people running for their lives, you know. And it does kind of conjure up images in our head about, what, you know, what, what is Jesus doing here? Here's Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's supposed to be, you know, nice, yeah. And here he is, like, going crazy in church. Just going crazy in church. And uh, certainly made an impression, that's for sure. What was he doing there? Well, Jesus went into the temple, and I have a picture, or a couple of slides behind here, Passover celebration. Um, we've got a picture of a model of the temple. Um, the, as Jesus went into the outer court of the temple, that great big huge area, and this model doesn't really picture it very well, because the temple complex was enormous. It took, it took up an area of about 20 to 30 acres. Okay? Most of that, 70, a good 75% of that, was those outer courtyards 
those big wide open areas and of course the, te- the, t- the temple itself is the real tall building in the middle and inside that little fortress that surrounds the temple were the inner courts, uh, the court of women, the court of the priests. The outer court, that huge massive outside area, including the porches with all the colonnades around it, was the court of the Gentiles. And as you first entered the temple, that's where you would come in, all the gates would pass through the court of the Gentiles. And that's where this huge market was set up. And as Jesus entered the temple on that day, this whole courtyard had been turned into a cattle auction. And there were, you know, picture this, 500,000 people coming to offer sacrifices. How many sheep does it take? Well, just some quick math. If there's four people in a family, there's 125,000 families. That's a lot of sheep, okay? Uh, it's very likely that this would take place over several days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed. Uh, there were probably, that courtyard was probably filled with merchants, money changers, and, uh, and, and, and cattle stalls. In addition to sheep, it says that there were bulls and there were also doves. Uh, apparently people were also offering sacrifices for uh, atonement at the same time. If you traveled you know, once a year, maybe once every five years to the temple, uh, once in a, really in a blue moon, you had the chance to come to the temple. You made the most of it. You know, you got your Passover lamb done. You, you sacrificed for all the sins you could think of. Because you've know, you got to cover you know, maybe some serious time here. So all this was going on. And as they came into the temple, uh, the, these, these animals were there in, in large number. And as Jesus comes in, he um, is, it says that he's passionate. The word really could be translated fiercely indignant. And I like that phrase because that really captures what Jesus did there. He was fiercely indignant at what was going on. Um, what exactly was going on? Well, there was these animals that were being sold. Uh, there were money tables there. Some people think that there you know, was, was some kind of corruption going on. But I don't think that was really the case. I don't think anybody was doing anything illegal. Uh, this had been made as a provision simply to facilitate the offerings. Uh, a time prior to this, these, this, this market, if you will, had been set up on the Mount of Olives. Uh, there had been a debate over whether or not this should be done in the temple. Uh, some people won, and it was really offered as a way of convenience. Okay? It wasn't that people were ripping people off necessarily. Um, the tax, the, the money for the, 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 the exchange of coins was for a temple tax that was paid at the same time. Uh, probably it was all very up and up and on, you know, on, on the honest. Jesus wasn't criticizing them for for stealing. In fact, in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, it talks about the um, temple being turned into to a den of robbers, but the reference really has more to do with robbing, uh, robbing access to God from the Gentiles. Um, so it's not that, that this was um, necessarily illegal or corrupt. Uh, these people had come a long distance to bring their animals with them would have been very awkward and cumbersome. So they were providing a service. So what is it that Jesus was so upset about? Well, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but what I think is interesting here is that certainly actions speak louder than words. Uh, Jesus does not convene a board meeting. He does not start a petition drive. He does not lobby the priests. He takes action. And he takes action because this is something that is a big deal to him. 
This is something that Jesus is extremely serious about. Uh, in many respects, it did push his buttons, and it did set him off. Uh, and he takes action by driving out these animals and turning over their tables. Um, I don't think, though, I think we get this picture of Jesus like going out of control. Like when, when our buttons get pushed, we may be a bit out of control, right? Uh, when, our bus, when people set us off, we're not always calm. Jesus certainly was not calm here. And we may get this picture that Jesus was rash and spontaneous and just instantly kind of blew. Like he walked into the temple and just exploded. It just started going crazy. But when you look closely at this passage, it's clear that it wasn't that way. Jesus was very in control. He was very ticked off, but he was always in control of himself. And I believe that this was somewhat premeditated. Uh, This wasn't the first time Jesus had been to a Passover. It wasn't the first time he'd been to the temple. Jesus knew what was going on there. Uh, Before he got there, he knew what the scene would be. And it's interesting, it says that he made a whip. Now, I've, I've, done, I've actually tried, as a, as a kid, I grew up on a farm, I was a cowboy of sorts. Uh, we actually used whips and stuff to herd cattle. And I tried on several accounts to make them. To make it right is not easy. It's not something like he was all ticked off and just, you know, went around grabbing rope and threw this thing together. To get one that works right, it takes some time to do right. I think he made it before he came. Text doesn't say that, we don't know. But it's true that he took the time to make this whip. Now this in itself is a kind of frightening thought. It conjures up images of like Indiana Jones. You know, I, I can see Jesus walking into the temple, you know, with this whip hanging around his waist. You know, it's like this little hat there. I don't know, it's just a scary thought. Uh, Jesus premeditated this. He planned it out. Uh, why did he need the whip? You know, it kind of goes back to my Sunday school Bible and these pictures of Jesus going crazy. Um, it's significant. In this, in this, the New Living Translation, it, it doesn't translate it so well. It says that he drove them out. Uh, literally, it says that he drove out the, the cattle and the sheep. He doesn't drive the people out. He doesn't go after... And like my child, my child Bible, I swear he was going after the people with the whip, you know. Uh, it wasn't the cattle and the sheep he was worried about, it was the people. He wasn't after the people. Why did he need a whip? Why did he need a whip? Well, you use a whip if you want to control cattle, not if you want to create chaos. I've done this, I've herded cows, and uh, if you want to just send them all different directions, you don't need a whip. He just goes yelling and screaming, and they'll take off in all directions. But Jesus didn't want to do that. Jesus was very careful to drive them out, to herd them out of the temple. And to do that, he needed a whip. He needed to control this, this event, this procession. And so he took the whip not to go crazy, not to like, terrorize people, but to make sure that he evacuated these animals orderly. See, his mission was to clear out the temple, not to, not to create chaos. In fact, had he created this huge stampede and chaos, it would have brought the Roman army and it would have caused great problems. Uh, Jesus was in control. What I'm trying to say is Jesus is in control of the situation. He goes in with a purpose. He takes action because it's something that he is passionate about. He is serious about. But he's not crazy. He's not raving mad. He's passionate. But he is well in control. Another sign that, that he uh, is well in control of himself. Now, I, I admit, you know, tipping, dumping out all the money and throwing the tables around is a bit crazy. 
I'm sure that got people's attention and nobody wanted to mess with this guy because he goes around, you know, dumping over their tables. Interestingly, though, they were also selling doves. If you were very poor and could not afford to buy a lamb or a bull, which were very expensive, you could make your sacrifice by buying a dove, very cheap. Uh, he doesn't go and start dumping the cages over and letting all the birds fly free. Okay, it says that he goes to the bird sellers. He says, get them out of here. Take these birds. Get them out of here. Okay, why does he do that? Well, I think Jesus is very concerned in this whole thing that he's not destroying people's property. I mean, for these, for these merchants, this is their livelihood. This is how they made their living. Jesus wasn't trying to harm them. He wasn't trying to, to, to steal from them their livelihood. If he had gone and let all the birds free, you know, um, that's their profit. You know, that's their, that's their lunch going, you know, away. Now, presumably, the sheep and the cows wouldn't go very far. They could find them. It may have been a mess. They were still there, wandering out the streets of Jerusalem. And I'm sure the, you know, the owners were um, out the door with the, with the cows, chasing after them. See, Jesus is in control here. He is on a mission. He is taking action. He's taking bold action. But he's not crazy. He's not out of control. He has a plan, and he knows what he's doing. And his goal is to clear that temple area of all this, all this chaos. All this. And really what he's doing is not bringing chaos, but he's bringing order out of chaos. He's taking this scene that's just chaotic, buying and selling and people and cows and animals, and he is wiping it out and bringing calm. Bringing and restoring to this temple uh, courtyard peace and a holy hush where there was this, this chaos of a market. Um, he took action. And he says to these, these bird sellers, he says, get these out of here. And he says, kind of the point of the whole exercise, stop turning my father's house into a market. What was this all about? Well, Jesus was cleaning house. He was not simply bringing order to a religious institution. Okay, this was not about the temple per se. This was not about worship. This was not about the institution called Judaism. Jesus is very clear in his words and he says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Jesus was passionate about something. And what he was passionate about, what he was deeply serious about, was his father's house. Uh, those words are powerful. Uh, to, to Jesus, this was not just an impressive temple complex. This was not just the grand institution of Israel's grand religious heritage and history. To Jesus, this was a house. And it wasn't just any house, but it was the house of his dear and precious Heavenly Father. And he came in passionate filled with zeal, filled with enthusiasm, filled with fierce indignation because he cared deeply about his father's house. What do those words mean? When he comes in to clear out this mess out of his father's house, what did Jesus have in mind by that? Well, the temple was a lot of things and the temple was a place where people brought sacrifices. It was a place where people came to pray uh, it was supposed to be the place where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And when you look at the temple in that framework as a temple, 
It is a religious place. It is a place of religious practice and religious tradition and religious worship. But it's interesting when you, when you put that in the context of a house, it's different. What is a house? Well, a house is simply a place where people live. It is a dwelling. It is an abode. And Jesus saw the temple, certainly in its role as a temple, and we'll see that in a minute. Certainly there were things about the temple that Jesus would fulfill in his own person. But more than that, it was the house where God lived on earth. One of the reasons this made Jesus so angry and so set him off is that the temple was supposed to be the place where God came and dwelled on earth and where in Jesus' day people could come and if they wanted to meet face to face with God, they would do it here. If you wanted to spend time dwelling in God's presence, you would do it at the temple. One of the greatest pictures of this is uh, Anna. If you remember Anna, uh, when Jesus was first born, and Mary and Joseph brought him to dedicate him at the temple. And there were a couple people there who recognized Jesus as a baby. One of them was Simeon, and another was this great lady called Anna. And it said that uh, she had got married young, she'd been married for about seven years, and then her husband died. And from that day when her husband died until she was 84 years old, she went to the temple and she never left. And she spent her days, and it says that she, she spent her days and her nights in the temple, fasting and praying, worshiping God. See, that's what the house of God is. It is the place where we commune and fellowship with the Father, where we come into His presence and we abide with Him and we worship Him in communion, in, in, in intimacy, where we are in His presence. And when Jesus saw this, uh, you know, if it's a religious institution, then making it convenient makes sense. It's like, hey, you've got to have sacrifices, you've got to do this, you know, you've got to offer these before the God, you've got to, you know, you've got to have, it's like fast food, you know. We've got to make this convenient. We've got to make it market-friendly. We've got to make it user-friendly. And we don't want people just not coming because it's too complicated. We've got to make it user-friendly. And so, if it's a church, if it's an institution, we make it user-friendly and the focus is on the customer. And that's kind of where the Israelites were in that day. They were focused on the customer. Let's make it easy for the customer. But if it's a house, what are you concerned about? The customer, the guest, the visitors, or the person who lives there? Jesus said, this isn't just a temple, it's my Father's house. My Father lives here. And He lives here for one purpose only, to meet and commune and fellowship with those who would come seek Him. And for Jesus, this was terrible because it was an enormous distraction to the reason God had a house at all on planet Earth. The reason God built a house on earth was so that people could come visit him and could communion with, with him. And in the midst of the chaos and confusion of it all, that wasn't happening. And most significantly, it wasn't happening. You, know, you, could, you could argue, well, yeah, you get through the outer court, it's a bit distracting, but once you get into the inner court, the little fortress there, you know, it's got high walls, the, the, the din of the cattle lowing in the background gets muffled out and and we've got our own little place in here where we can worship God. But uh, not everybody had access into that inner temple. That outer, outer courtyard was the court of the Gentiles because it was the only place the Gentiles could, could go. If a Gentile wanted to go meet with God, that was their boundary. I believe one of the reasons Jesus was so upset about this is that it was a terrible witness of God to the world. 
the place where the outer world could come find and seek God was here. And when they came in, instead of seeing the holy hush and quietness and presence of God, what they saw was a market that looked just like the market on the other side of the wall. They saw something that looked just like the world. And that made Jesus angry. That for those on the outside who would come seeking God, would not find God's holy presence specially preserved inside those walls, but would find something that looked just very much like the world. Uh, what a harsh reminder for, for the church. That the church not look just like the world. That the church not be a place that markets to its customers, but is a holy place that first and foremost honors the Father and makes his name holy and creates a sacred space where God can be worshipped. Um, so Jesus clears it out and he restores this space to its intended purpose, to a quietness and calm, a holy hush, uh, a place where God's presence would be readily felt. Although at that moment, I don't know how much it was felt. <laughs> they were probably just kind of really weirded out by all that Jesus did. But his action was very symbolic of restoring this place to its intended purpose. Um, later on in the New Testament, Paul and, and, and uh, the writers of the rest of the New Testament make it clear that we are uh, the modern day temple. You know, uh, when I was a kid, um, I remember being, as a kid, you know, sitting at a church me business meeting, really exciting for kids, you know. I love those days when I had to sit around. But I remember there was this very lively discussion because at the church they wanted to have like a, a yard sale or something. And pretty well the whole thing got killed because you can't have yard sales at churches. And they based it on this passage. And for a long time I thought, well, that makes sense, you know. If we had yard sales, Jesus would come and he would beat us up with his whip. Um, totally misses the point, okay. It has nothing to do with that, all right. And now I wish I could go back and, you know, explain to these people that they were missing it altogether. It has nothing to do with church yard sales. It has nothing to do with selling t-shirts or books in your church lobby. In fact, I think, you know, last time I was back in, in the United States, I've come to discover that you really can't have a church these days unless you have a coffee bar selling coffee in your lobby. And it's not free anymore. It's like Starbucks, like five bucks, you know. But, you know, you've got to have to be a church, a real church. You've got to have the coffee bar. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's not bad based on this passage, okay? You can't argue it from this passage because this place where we meet is not a temple of God. Okay, the building where we have church is not God's house. Okay, a lot of people call it that. A lot of people say it's that. And it is only that because you and I sit here. We, together, are God's temple. We are a living temple. The building is nothing. It's bricks and mortar and, and usually really bad colored carpet. Okay, it's, it's not God's house. Can you understand that? It is not a holy temple. Okay, I used to get yelled at and screamed for running in church because it was a holy place. Well, there is something for having respect there, and I'm not saying that. But it's not God's house. Okay, when we leave, God doesn't hang around there because it's boring. There's nothing there, you know. Uh, it's an empty building, and he doesn't live there. He lives here. He lives in our heart. We are living temples, Peter says. We are living temples. God through the work of Christ, has taken up residence in us. Uh, 
And here's the question. We are that temple. Our heart is that temple. There should be within us, if God is present with us, if He has saved and redeemed us, we are God's dwelling. We, within us, in our heart and in our life, God has set up a home, a temple, a place where He wants to meet and commune with us. Where He wants to have intimate, personal fellowship with us. The great thing about what Jesus did is we don't have to go to Jerusalem to be in God's presence. We don't have to go to church to be in God's presence. We don't have to go to some holy site to be in God's presence. God's presence abides with us continually. But the question is this. If Jesus were to come into our temple, would he be happy? Or would he be set off? Would he be outraged? Would he be fiercely indignant because of the things that's abiding there? Are there things in our heart and life that would be... uh, would bring about God's passionate, furious zeal. Things that are robbing Him of the intimacy He desires with us. You know, it can be a lot of things. It can be sin, of course. Uh, you know, if our... And here's the test. Here's the test. When you go to that quiet place, which I hope you know that place, I hope you have a place in your heart and mind where you go... And you meet with God. You open your, the Bible, you go in prayer, you come into His presence and you begin to pray. What are the things that, that start rushing into that space? Uh, maybe it's bad thoughts. Maybe you, know, you have not driven out. And here's the deal, you know, throughout your day you think bad things, you let bad things into your mind, you go to pray, you know, those things are still there. And if you haven't dealt with them otherwise, when you go to pray, guess what? They start crowding in and interfering with our heart relationship with God. Maybe it's our worries. Maybe there are things that we are worried about, the affairs of everyday life, the business of life, and we sit down to pray. And you know how it is. You go to pray, you go to focus on God, and like you pray for 30 seconds, and then you, you find out 10 minutes have gone by, and out of 30 seconds of praying, 9 minutes and 30 seconds have been worrying and thinking about what I'm supposed to be doing or where I'm going to get money to pay for this, right? And what happens? those courtyards get filled with a marketplace, with the daily business of everyday life, with the distractions that crowd into that space and keep us from meeting God in intimacy. Uh, It can be a gazillion things. Maybe it's just the busyness of our life. Maybe the reality is it's not even, we don't even get to the courtyard. Maybe it is really the outer courtyard of our life that is so busy and so full of activity, and so full of serving God and saving the world, that we, we never get to the Holy of Holies. Because there's so much crowding in the way, so many distractions, so much busyness, so much activity, that the reality is we spend very little time in the house of God, quiet before Him, communing with the Father. And the question is, are you as passionate about getting those things out of your life as Jesus is? You know, Jesus is going to come after you with a whip if you're not careful. Okay, He wants to drive those things out of your life. Are we as passionate and zealous about getting those things out of our life as He is? Are we as passionate about God's house, about our Father's house? Are we as zealous about making this place in our life where God is worshipped and where His presence is honored and He is holy? How fit is our temple? 
Um, that's not really the end of the story. Uh, the disciples remember, they observe that Jesus, they observe all this, and the thing that comes to their mind is a psalm, which says, passion for God's house burns within me. Passion for God's house. Uh, the thing that God, the thing that Jesus is most zealous about, the thing that is a consuming passion in his life, is, is this relationship, this un, unencumbered, unhindered relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, then, of course, in the midst of all this, the, the, uh, you can imagine the temple police, which they had. I think we need this. I think we need church police, you know. Um, the, the religious leaders, the, the people in charge, they show up. And you can imagine, if you're in charge and this guy's just like going crazy, you'd be like a bit uh, taken back. And if it was me, I would just have the guy arrested. Interestingly, they don't do that. They don't say, okay, sir, you need to step away from the cows and you know, put your whip down and put your hands in the air and follow us. They don't do that. Instead, they say, you know, what sign can you give us that you have authority to do this? Interesting question. Um, and if you remember, when we look back in John chapter 1, they asked John the same thing. They're really big into this whole sign thing. Why? Well, they were big into it because they, they were looking for the Messiah. You know, they were really kind of looking and very hopeful for somebody who would do this. I think one of the reasons they weren't totally taken back is that they kind of expected it. In fact, there was an ongoing debate in the, among the religious leaders about whether or not this should be, this was permissible. And there was, for many years, had been an ongoing struggle. And sometimes it was allowed. At other periods of time, it was not allowed, depending on who was in power. And uh, they had debated this. And maybe some of them were going, see, I knew it wasn't right. And maybe some of them were kind of cheering for Jesus. And others were feeling kind of threatened by their own power and control and authority. So, so they come and they, they wonder, maybe this guy has, maybe he's got some power and authority. Maybe he is the Messiah. And so they ask for a sign. Interestingly, Jesus had already really explained the authority base for his action. When he said, this is my father's house. He says, I'm doing this as a son who is defending the honor and name of my father. Uh, really, it's an indictment of them. He says, you know, if you were really concerned about the reputation and honor of the Father, you would be doing the same thing. The fact that you're not is really an indictment on your lack of care for God's name and his honor. But uh, he plays a little game with them. He actually kind of messes with their head. He's really good at this. He enjoyed doing this with the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was, it, was his, it was his entertainment, really, was messing with their head. So he, uh, he says to the answers to them, okay, no problem. I will give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll resurrect it. Okay, now of course, they were thinking about the temple complex itself. Jesus was thinking of his body. But this great play on words uh, just totally throws them off. And uh, the, the temple of Herod was, was an, a massive complex. As you saw the picture, 20-some acres, uh, it had been in construction process for 46 years up to this point. 46 years. In fact, we can date this because we know when the temple was begun. So we know that this event took place in 27 AD. Okay, another, it's another good argument for the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple twice because we know when this took place. Um, 27 AD, 
Uh, it had been 46 years since the temple construction began. Um, they enlisted, the, the Herod, when he began the project, enlisted 1,000 priests and trained them as stone cutters so that only priests could, could cut the stone so that they would be holy. Uh, he hired an additional 10 to 18,000 people who worked full-time on this complex. It was 46 years up to this point in the making. It was another 30 years before it was finished. Okay, this is a huge construction project. Huge. Massive building. Some of the stones weighed as much as 70 tons. In fact, it's interesting, just recently, I don't know if you saw this, they, they unearthed the quarry where all the stones came from in, near Jerusalem, and they have no idea how the stones got from there to the temple. I mean, a 70-ton stone... Uh, 70 ton stone, you just don't like pick it up and lug it on your back. You know, this is a big, some big rocks. Um, and Jesus says, destroy this and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, if, uh, speaking literally, if he, if he could do that, he could do anything he wants, right? Uh, if he could rebuild it in three days, certainly that would be a convincing sign. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was speaking of not that temple, but another temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And he said, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will resurrect it. Uh, it becomes clear that Jesus, as in the story of the wedding, in this story, Jesus is doing this, and he's casting its meaning in light of the cross. Okay, it does have meaning uh, for us, clearing, clearing our lives out, but it has even another layer, a uh, deeper meaning. When we look at it through the cross, when we look at it through the resurrection, uh, Jesus says there is... There is another temple. This isn't the only temple. You think it's the only temple, but there is a greater temple that supersedes uh, this temple. And that temple is my body. As the holy living God who's come to earth, God incarnate, this bodily temple is really the temple that counts. And uh, Jesus, of course, did die. They did destroy that temple. He did raise again three days later. Interestingly, and not coincidentally, at Passover. And Jesus is saying, I believe, he's pointing to these animal sacrifices and he's saying, you know, these things must be done away with. He drove out these animals because he was ending the sacrificial system through his own death. Destroyed this temple. I will lay down my life. I as the shepherd, will lay down my life for the sheep. I will be the final, perfect, supreme Passover lamb. I will be the final, perfect, supreme, sacrificial atonement for sin. You see, when you lay this body down and I raise it again, I raise it to life again, no longer will there be a need for a single animal to be slain in worship. I will be the ultimate final sacrifice. And so his, mean, his, his actions had meaning far beyond what they saw. When we look at it through the eyes of the cross, it becomes clear that Jesus is saying, this is the end of it. Get rid of it. No more do you have to come before God paying for it yourself. No longer can you, with your own resources and your own funds, your own money, buy your forgiveness. It's not good enough. It is inadequate. There is only one sacrifice, and all these sacrifices, sacrifices point to this one. And that is this temple that will be laid down as the perfect, sac perfect and complete sacrifice for sin. 
And after that, there will be no more need. It will be full and complete. And the most amazing thing of, of all is, it's not one you can buy. It's not one that you can barter or purchase or trade for. It is a sacrifice that is, a, that is God's gift to us. God paid the full price. And there's nothing we can do to add to its price. God has paid it fully and completely. We can only receive it by faith. And all that Jesus did points to that, points to his perfect sacrifice that would make it possible for us to be coming into God's presence simply through the blood of Christ, simply through the blood of the Lamb that died on the cross for us. And so we come now and we are made together as living sacrifices and there is nothing we can do to improve to make it better. You know, um, you cannot improve or better your relationship with God through any of your own spending. Uh, It took me a long time to learn this lesson. And for a long time I thought, you know, God loved me okay, but he would love me more if I served him hard. And so I poured my life into serving. Actually, I poured out my life serving. I about killed myself serving, trying to merit and earn God's love and respect. It's like, God, I'm working hard. See, I'm working hard for you. Look what a good job I'm doing for you. I'm evangelizing everybody I know to prove to you how good I am. And God was saying the whole time, you know, I already paid the sacrifice. I already spent everything. There's nothing you can do to add to the gift. I tried in my own strength to be righteous, saying, God, look at how good I am. Look at what a good person I am. But see, God is not interested in those. In fact, in 2 Peter 2.5, Peter says this, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2.5, not 2 Peter. 1 Peter 2.5. Peter writes, And God is now building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are God's holy priests who offer the spiritual sacrifices that please him because of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't bring physical sacrifices. We don't bring sacrifices that we've paid for anymore. But as God's temple, we still do bring sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices that please Him. What is it God wants from us? Well, He does want something from us. But what He wants most of all is our heartfelt love and affection. He wants everything that we do to be coming to Him, into His house, as our Father, as gifts of love and thankfulness. That's what God desires from us. Those are the spiritual sacrifices Spiritual sacrifices. You know, he wants us to serve him. Mostly he gives us the privilege of serving him. He allows us the opportunity to be involved in his work. Uh, But it should be a spiritual sacrifice that pleases him because it comes from a heart of, of abundant thankfulness. Saying, God, you have done so much. You paid it all. You made the complete sacrifice. And I don't come to add to that sacrifice in any way but simply to give my own spiritual sacrifice to honor and worship you, to please you. And that's what what our worship looks like now uh, through the great temple, which was Jesus. Um, Finally, let me close with this thought. We We need to look at setting our own house in order. Uh, Interesting, it says in verse 22, after Jesus was raised from the dead, 
The disciples remembered that he had said this. Again, after the cross, it made sense. After the cross, they could really see its full meaning. And they believed both Jesus and the scriptures. Uh, It was confirmed not only what Jesus did, what he said, but it was confirmed by what was written in the Old Testament. That Jesus had to die, that he had to rise again, that he would be the supreme sacrifice, and that all the pictures of the Old Testament, the very temple itself, pointed to Jesus. And the, the book of Hebrews uh, is a great study of how Jesus is this temple, this high priest, this perfect sacrifice for us. Then it goes on, it says, because of Jesus, because of the miraculous signs he did, which apparently there were many others, as Jesus healed, did miracles in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one needed to tell him about human nature. Um, you know, I really believe that we need to work, we need to come before God and set our own temple in order, our own house of God in order. And it's interesting that Jesus, as he did miracles, as he did signs, you know, large crowds were moved. And they said, man, this is the Messiah. And it says they trusted him, they believed in him as the Messiah. But it says that Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about them. And it really is significant that this very similar crowd, two more Passovers later, three years later, would be chanting for his crucifixion. Uh, Jesus, Jesus sees the heart. And there's two, kinds of, there's two kinds of faith. There's two things that can happen. First, there's, there's the faith that, that in our head says, yeah, this is, this is Jesus. And it does have value. Okay, Jesus wasn't dismissing its value. Out of this crowd, there were some who, who went to deeper levels of faith. But this faith by itself has problems. And the problem is basically our human nature. The problem is that this faith has all kinds of buttons. This faith gets set up by all the wrong kinds of things. This is the faith that is very selfish, very proud, very much consumed with our own agenda. And we like Jesus, and we believe in him as long as it fits in our plan and our agenda, as long as it conforms to our idea of what we think God should be. And Jesus said, you know, I don't trust that. I don't give that much credence. Um, A word to those of us who like to count converts. You know, we, as soon as somebody says the prayer and we dunk them, you know, we, we count it. Oh, we got them. We got that one. Jesus didn't trust that. Jesus did not trust quick converts. Jesus didn't keep records of, based on the first day they said they were saved. You know, the first day they walked the aisle. Okay, Jesus counted converts on the last day. The day before they went to the grave. After they had lived many, many years. What came of that faith? What became of that step to declare this is the Messiah? Sadly, I think in churches we sometimes do a great, um, a great harm when we too quickly call people Christians. You know, you, you got saved, you said the prayer, you got baptized, you went through the little class, you know, go get them. And we don't expect much more out of people's life. Jesus expected a great deal more. Jesus didn't expect quick, shallow, superficial faith. He expected faith, but he expected it to be much more than a superficial faith that didn't go very deep. Because he knows human nature. And he knows that we are complicated beings that can believe something in one part of our life 
and totally disbelieve and live in opposition to it in another part of our life. And in fact, he knew that that was the case with many of these people. Their faith was not ingenuine. It wasn't that it wasn't real, but it wasn't complete. It covered only one small part of their life, not the whole thing. It was good on Sunday when they were at the temple and they were all spiritual and offering sacrifices and having, you know, you're supposed to be spiritual at Passover time. But Jesus knew that it wouldn't penetrate or it wasn't yet penetrating to every part of their life. In fact, even in his own disciples, it wasn't until after the cross, after the resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that they really got it. That they really uh, had a faith that possessed them. Uh, in our own life, um, what does it take for faith to be more than just a superficial assent that, yeah, Jesus is Jesus? Well, I really believe this, is a great, this, this passage is a great picture of what it really takes. What I believe it really takes is a coming home. It's one thing to believe Jesus is the Savior. It's another thing to be at dwelling in the house of the Father. And see, Jesus knew until they had come home, until these people knew what it meant to live and walk and dwell moment by moment in the house of the Father, that the faith wasn't enough. It was a good first step, and for many it would be the first of many steps that would get them there. But it's not the end goal. The end goal was not just to believe in Jesus. The end goal was to be at home. To have within us the house of God clean, well-prepared, free of those distractions. And you know, it's a lifelong thing. I chase the cows out one door, man, they come right back in the other door. You know, it's, it's not easy. It takes work. It takes fierce passion and determination on our part to make our life the house of God. It does not happen accidentally. It doesn't happen casually. It takes fierce determination. It takes fierce indignation at those things that rob intimacy with God. And the problem is, most of us, I mean, from my own experience, I don't hate those cows. I make them pets. You know, I like those cows. I kind of like having them around. I make them my pets because they keep me company. And Jesus says, you must drive them out of your life. And it only happens when it becomes the the consuming passion of our life to make our heart and our life God's house, the abode where our Heavenly Father dwells. When we do that, God will transform us. And in time, the things that set us off will be the things that set off Jesus. And see, that's the goal. That's the test. The test is that when the things that really push my buttons are the things in my life that rob me of fellowship with the Father, the things in my kids' life and my, my friends' lives that rob them of true communion and fellowship with the Father, when I'm angry not just because it's sin, but because I know it's robbing them of that robbing God of the place of honor and respect and worship in their life. Where the name of God and His honor is the thing that consumes me. Instead, I find myself consumed with my own pride. What sets me off is when people insult my intelligence or my, you know, my work. When my agenda gets stepped on. You know, when my... Uh, 
my plans get wrecked. Sometimes God ticks me off because he wrecks my plans. Sometimes God pushes my buttons. And that's kind of backwards. It should be the other way around. It should be the things of God that push our buttons. Let's pray. Father, even now we, we prepare to come into your house and to have a fellowship meal with you. And Lord, as we prepare to take communion, it is, uh, it is an ancestor, it is uh, a passing on from that very Passover meal that was celebrated in this passage. But it is a much greater Passover that we celebrate because it's not one just a bondage from a enslavement to a land and a country, but it is ultimate redemption that we celebrate as we have been set free from sin and death through the holy temple that was destroyed and rebuilt again in the person of Christ on the cross. And so, Father, as we prepare to take this, this fellowship meal with you in your house, Lord, we ask that you would help us right this moment to, to prepare our temple, prepare our heart. Lord, that we would confess those things that, that are there that are not honoring to you. Uh, Lord, those things that we need you to drive out. Lord, we thank you that we can't really drive them out. But if we'll surrender, Jesus will do it. Uh, he has scourge in hand and he is well equipped to deal with those things if we will invite him to do that. Lord, I thank you that you don't take your whip to us, but just to the things in our lives that are interfering with our sweet communion and fellowship with you. So even now, Father, we just ask that you would prepare our hearts. Um, cleanse us by the blood of Christ. Make us a fit temple where we can right at this moment commune and fellowship with you. This time if I could ask the, the band to come up. Let's just uh, remain in silent prayer. Just ask God to, to speak to your heart those things that he would reveal to you, things that you need to deal with right this moment. Lord Jesus, we really do ask and pray that this, this time right now really would be a communion. A communing and fellowshipping with you. A drawing into your presence. Lord, I thank you that it's all by grace. It doesn't matter how much we've messed up this last week or this last month or even this morning. Today, right now, we can come through grace, through the blood of Christ. And we can draw before you and share this cup of communion, of fellowship, of remembering your incredible sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. Lord, we ask that you would meet us and set our house in order, that in it you would be lifted up. Your great love, your great gift of Christ would be celebrated in our midst.
we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, if I could ask uh, our ushers to come, they're going to come and pass out the cups and the wine, the juice. And as we do that, we're going to sing together a, uh, a song. So.